All right, this is the end. One last night. Take a Bible, find the book of Revelation all the way in the back. We started many, many months ago in the book of Genesis, and we'll wrap it up tonight with Revelation. Revelation is, when you think about, we're going to spend one night talking about the book of Revelation, like we've spent one night talking about all these other books. Um, You could spend a week talking nonstop and not cover all the debates and controversies and different views and theories and this and this and this and on and on and on. So there's obviously no way in 45 minutes that we can, we can cover all the things that you would like to cover. No way that I can try to answer all the questions you would like answered. And you may not like my answers, but you maybe would like the questions answered and at least have the opportunity to disagree with me and be angry. We just don't have time for all of that. And because there's so much debate about the book and so uh, the viewpoints are so different, I mean, just radically different approaches to the book, I don't, I don't think it's helpful to really try to get into the weeds of it too much. So I know I joked last week, we're going to answer all your questions and tell you all the dates you want to know and all that. We're not going to do that. There's no way we can do that. And you knew I was joking last week, I hope. Or if you're disappointed to hear that we're not going to do all that, you can leave if you want to leave because we're not going to do that. We can't do it in 45 minutes. And instead, what we're going to talk about is bigger issues. And we're going to start off about the first half. We're going to talk about interpretive issues relating to the book and sort of big framework questions about how the book works and what it actually is. And then we'll end with some things with, I think I've got about 10, big non-debatable truths from the book of Revelation, really important things that Revelation teaches us that everybody agrees on, that we don't have to argue or, or disagree. So the first half of the night, we can disagree. And you can listen to me and you can say, this guy's a kook. This guy's so stupid. I don't, where is he coming off on this stuff? That don't make, doesn't make any sense. That's not what I've ever heard. I don't understand that. You can disagree with me on the front end. All that stuff, we can disagree. And I'll just tell you, I have books in my office by various authors whom I love who would disagree 100% on the book of Revelation. And it doesn't mean you have to throw that person out, or it doesn't mean you have to find a new church, or it doesn't mean somebody's a heretic. Uh, These are really, when you come to the book of Revelation, in the first half of the night, the things we're going to talk about are secondary issues. They're not primary issues that, that all Christians need to agree on and understand and believe and hold fast to. Um, when we get to the second half of the night, right, I think it's the back side of your outline, then there's really no room for disagreement. You just got to fall in line, not with me, but with the book of Revelation, and that's the way it is. So we're going to start, and uh, I'm just going to put some pictures up. And I just want you to look at these pictures. This is a chart that is supposed to simplify the book of Revelation for you. If you don't like that one, maybe you like this one. That one's nice because it's got fire at the bottom. Not only lines and a flow chart, but actually has, has some graphics there at the bottom. Go to the next one. This one uh, is actually connecting the book of Daniel, and you see this big statue laying down sideways. They're sort of trying to connect Daniel and the book of Revelation and different things. And I'm telling you, I know that you can't see all of what's in these graphics, but there's a lot of writing on there. I mean, it's really, really small stuff, and it's very, very detailed, and there's lines going every which way and all this different stuff. So there's another one. It has some nice colors in it. Here's one, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, you can see sort of the lines on the bottom and the top and the angles and all this, this crazy stuff in that one. Go to the next one. One more for you. That one's got some, some fiery beasts down at the bottom, if you like that kind of thing. And then go to this next one. This one's my favorite. I mean, that is, that's insanity. Somebody, a human being, if you made that and put it on the internet, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm about to make fun of you. But some human being said, the book of Revelation's confusing. I'm going to make it easier for people to understand. And that's what they came up with. This simplifies it. Lines and it's craziness. It's insanity. And so if you really like prophecy charts, 
Again, I don't want to make fun of you. I just want to be honest and say, I don't think that's the point of the book of Revelation. When the Apostle John sat down to write this book, I don't think his mindset was, I'm going to write a book, 20-some chapters, and my goal in this is that some white guy in America 2,000 years later will read it and codify it in a flowchart. That's not what he wanted to happen. It's not what he expected to happen. And I really, really think that when we, and I'm just, when I say we, to be honest, what, I'm, what I mean is Americans, okay? Americans are the ones who do this stuff. When Americans try to take the book of Revelation and say, this is too complicated, let's put it in a flow chart, you miss the point of the entire book. It is not the point at all. And so just be careful when it comes to some of this stuff. And I'm going to talk out of the other side of my mouth because in a minute I'm going to show you some simplified diagrams that can help you understand different viewpoints. And I'm going to show you some of those things so you can call me a hypocrite if you want to. But the stuff up there, that's insanity. And that's not what John had in mind. So here's the first question we need, we need to ask and figure out. Okay, You have to do this with every book of the Bible that you study. And the question you need to ask yourself is, what type of literature is the book of Revelation? What are we actually dealing with here? That matters, right? It, you know that it matters if you've been here on Wednesday nights. Because when we talked about the book of Genesis, we approached Genesis differently than we approached the book of Psalms. You don't interpret them the same. You don't interpret the book of First Kings like you interpret the book of Song of Solomon. When the author in the Song of Solomon says to his bride that her teeth are like white lambs, none of them are missing. They each have a pair. You realize he's not saying that she has like buck teeth or sheep teeth or something like that. You say, that's poetry. And he's from a certain culture and that's an image for them and it makes sense. And you understand that. When you, under, when you read the book of First Kings and it says so-and-so was a bad king and he was a bad guy and he worshipped Baal, you don't try to decode that, right? You don't say, well, what does he really mean? What does that mean? What's the symbolism there? You just say, that's what it means. It's different kinds of writing. If you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you better start by understanding what kind of writing it is. And so let me give you something that you can sort of mull on for the next week or so. You ready? Revelation is prophecy cast in an apocalyptic mold and written in letter form. It's unique among books in the Bible because really it's a mixture or a combination of three different types of literature. And so on the one hand, you have prophecy. And if your Bible's open, look at Revelation 1 verse 3. It says, who bore witness about the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Blessed, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. The book itself says it's a prophecy. So it has something to do with the future. But it also has an apocalyptic tone to it. And the very first word in the book, uh, I know this is not the case in our English translations. The first word in most English translations is going to be the word the But the very next word is revelation, and that's literally the word apocalypse. In fact, some older translations start out with that word, the apocalypse. And what that means is the unveiling. And so it's saying right at the beginning, this is not just prophecy, but it's also apocalyptic in nature. And we're going to talk about that. So it's right there in verse 1. But it's also a letter. So you look at chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's like you're reading one of Paul's letters, right? When Paul says, hey, this is Paul and I'm writing to the church in Rome. Hey, this is Paul, I'm writing to the church in Ephesus. When you read those kind of letters, Paul's writing to these churches, do you try to decode everything that Paul says? No, you just say, this is a guy writing a letter to some people. And so you got to keep all these things in your brain at the same time. And many of the bad interpretations of Revelation forget one or more of these. So somebody will say, look, this is a letter. And they'll forget that it also has prophecy and apocalyptic writing in it. 
And that changes the way you interpret the book. Or they'll say, look, it's prophecy. It's all about the future, prophecy in the future. And they forget the apocalyptic part. They forget the letter part. You get the idea. You've got to keep all these, all these things going together. Um, let me say a word about apocalyptic writing. Um, there's other places in the Bible that have apocalyptic writing. So you can look in the book of Isaiah has some of it. book of Ezekiel has more of it. book of Daniel has a decent amount of it. And the book of Zechariah has a lot of it. Okay? Apocalyptic in those books, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay? Take off the, the pastor hat and just talk to you like a real person. Apocalyptic is the stuff you read in the Old Testament and you say, what in the world does that mean? What is he talking about? Is he smoking crack when he writes this? That sounds like somebody ate mushrooms, wild mushrooms, and they were not the kind of mushrooms you're supposed to eat. This is a specific kind of literature in the ancient world. And the most important thing you need to know about apocalyptic writing is that it uses stock images and it uses, for lack of a better word, sort of idiomatic expressions. So in apocalyptic writing, when you read things like the moon turned to blood and the stars fell from the sky, white guys in the United States who don't remember and remind themselves, I'm reading Apocalypse right now, they say, okay, moon turns to blood, stars fall from the sky. They try to take it literally. And they say, that must mean we're waiting for the moon to turn a certain color, and we're waiting for shooting stars or comets or Halley's Comet or whatever. They're trying to take it very literally. In apocalyptic writing, when you read about the moon turning to blood and the stars falling from the sky, the basic idea behind that is the powers that are in control of this world are being shaken to the core. This ancient worldview where there's power in the stars and there's gods in the heavens and there's all these unseen forces. And the apocalyptic author is saying those things are being shaken to the core because the rule of God is about to break in and lay all of that down flat. That's the point. He's not saying get your telescope out and wait for shooting stars. And if you miss that in apocalyptic writing, then you come to the book of Revelation, especially chapter about 10 up to 17, and you lose your mind. I mean, you really just go crazy trying to figure out, what does this mean? What is he referring to? What is this? And you got to slow down. you got to say, this is apocalyptic writing. They're using idiomatic expressions. The things that they're saying are not to be taken literally, sort of like... You understand this from the way we talk every day. If you and I are having a conversation and you're telling me a story and you get to the important part of the story and you, your mind just goes blank, you ever have that feeling? You're turning along talking and then you just sort of lose it. And I say to you, what happened? Did the cat get your tongue? Do I really think that a feline animal has latched on to the muscle that sits in the middle of your mouth? No. It's an expression and you know what it means. And in this ancient worldview, they understood. He's, he's not talking literally. He's talking figuratively. He's talking in apocalyptic language. So there's that. There is prophecy. And it's throughout the book of Revelation, it describes itself as prophecy. And the idea there is that it is talking about things to come. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And then it is a letter. You have to remember that it's a letter. Meaning, okay, it's a letter. That may seem basic and irrelevant. A real human being sat down and wrote this. Yes, he was inspired by God, but he was a real person. And when he wrote it, he was thinking about real people. He didn't send this letter to you. Do you understand that? When he wrote this book, he wasn't thinking, okay, Odessa, Texas, 2016, they're going to have a Wednesday night deal, and they're going to need something to study the last Wednesday night when Awana's wrapping up, and so let's write a letter for them that talks about the end. Wasn't on his mind. Is there something for you to learn in it? Absolutely. Do we need it in the Bible? Absolutely. just want you to understand, John was not thinking of you when he wrote the book or any of the crazy fiction authors who live in the United States and make a lot of money writing books about the book of Revelation. So it's apocalyptic writing, it's prophecy, and it's also a letter, okay? Here's the circumstances of the book. I didn't have room to put this on your outline. I had to cut some stuff. Uh, John wrote it, Apostle John, and he wrote it from the island of Patmos, and he wrote it 
to the, the seven churches, my typo on the screen, seven churches in Asia. Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia. So just to brush up on geography, check out this picture, okay? Over on the left is Greece. Over on the right is what we call Turkey. Right below there, you see there's a little hump on the bottom, and it says Cyrene. That's Libya, for lack of a better word, North Africa, right down there, Mediterranean Sea. You can see uh, Crete and Cyprus. And where the circle is, is the island of Patmos. And then I put seven dots over to the right. And those dots are the churches, seven churches that John was writing to. And it's kind of a, a neat thing when you look at it. Look in your Bible, okay, at the letters, chapter 2 and 3. And your Bible probably has headings of, of the letters and the, the churches that are being addressed. He writes it in the exact same order. He addresses all these churches in the exact same order that a courier would go if he was delivering this book one at a time. Just goes in a big U shape. So the first one is Ephesus. The next one is Smyrna. Then Pergamum. Then Thyatira. Then Sardis. Then Philadelphia. Then Laodicea. Just in a big loop. And so in John's mind, it's just another reminder. He's thinking about real people. He's going to send this letter to somebody, and he wants them to read it and benefit from it somehow. And he's thinking about these particular churches. And he knows he's going to send it with somebody because he's in exile on this island. And so he says, look, I'm going to write to him. So I'm going to hit this one first, and then this one, and then this one, and this one all the way around the loop in this path that the, uh, the courier would go. Here's some pictures for you. That's what the island of Patmos looks like. And uh, I realize that one on the left looks like several different islands clumped together, but you can see they're connected all the way through. And it's basically just a rock that sticks out of the the Mediterranean Sea there. And there's a lot of different islands like this. Uh, Put the next picture up. This is uh, down on the coast, looking up at part of the city on the island. It is, uh, you should Google it and, uh, and look at some of the pictures. I'm only showing you a few. It's a beautiful island. Go to the next one. This is up on that hill that you just saw looking down at the bay. There's a big bay out there in the middle. Next picture uh, shows that bay up close. Some of the buildings there, homes and businesses, things like that. Uh, there's a beach, beautiful beaches on the island. Okay, this one. This is a church slash shrine. So the island is not very big. So you can imagine if we believe the book says that the Apostle John was on this island when he wrote it, it didn't take long for people to go to the island and say, well, where was he when he wrote it? Like, where where was he sitting? Where was his house? Where was his desk? Where was the cave or whatever? And they built this church on the site that tradition says John was. And you say, so was that really the site? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's not a very big island, so it was somewhere on the island. And I guess this is as good a guess as any other one. So that's what it looks like from the outside. You can go in and visit it, and it looks like this. Just They got some pictures up. They got some uh, pew benches over here on the right, and it sort of goes back uh, on this backside and candles and et cetera, et cetera. So there is a little shrine there. Is that my last picture? I can't remember. Last one? Okay. Um, So that's where he was. Gives you a visual of what we're talking about. Here's the structure of the book. I did not have space to put this on your outline. I cut it off. Um, I'll be real honest with you. That's Landon's structure of the book. Okay, open a hundred books on how the book of Revelation is structured and laid out and you'll find a hundred different answers as far as an outline for the actual book. But as I look at it, I think you can break it down into these chunks. First chapter is introduction, then there's the seven letters. Chapter four and five clearly go together. It's a vision of heaven. Six, seven, and eight are about seven seals, and then there's some overlap here. Eight, nine, ten, eleven are seven trumpets, then there's seven signs, then there's seven bowls, then 17 to 20 is about the triumph of God, the final victory of God, and then the last is about the new creation. So there's a sort of a big view picture of how the book is laid out. Let's talk about how we interpret the book. And let me start with uh, just one analogy to help you understand why we're talking about this. Because I'm about to throw some terms at you. And some people hear these terms and just sort of think, this is so stinking boring. Can we just talk about a dragon already or the prostitute coming out of the sea or somebody getting a tattoo on their forehead? Can we talk about something good like that? Listen, we, you can talk about that stuff. 
and I'm happy to talk about that stuff. But arguing about that stuff is kind of like, have you ever sat down, I'm just going to pick on Mormons, okay? You ever sat down and argued with a Mormon about baptism for the dead? You know, they baptize by proxy for dead people. Have you ever sat down and had that conversation? You might as well be talking to a wall, and I'm sure they feel the exact same way talking to me. And do you know why you don't get anywhere in those kind of arguments with somebody of a different faith when you sit down and you start hashing it out with them? You don't get anywhere because you're working off of two totally different playbooks. Your playbook is the Old and the New Testament. Their playbook is completely different. So you sit there and you argue, does the Bible say this, does the Word of God say this, does the Scripture say this, back and forth, and you both have your proof verses and you throw them at each other, and then you come down to the end of it and you say, you know, really the argument here is what is going to be our authority, and what are we going to argue from, not what are we going to argue about. And it's exactly the same with the book of Revelation. We can sit down and we can have all sorts of debates and arguments about this beast and the dragon and the false prophet and the tattoos and the marks and all the stuff. We can talk about all those things that people think are so interesting. But if we don't agree fundamentally on how to interpret the book as a whole, we're just talking past each other. No one will convince anyone of their position until you understand how you're approaching the book as a whole. And so I'm going to give you... Five terms, and I hope you don't think these are boring. I hope they're helpful for you in thinking about the book and how you need to approach it. Okay? I'm going to explain each. The first one is called the preterist position. Okay, I'm going to explain each of these as we go. Preterist position. This position gives a lot of attention to the original author and the original recipients and the original context. That's the focus of the book. And this position says, there's no denying it's prophecy, right? The word is in the book all the way through it. From chapter 1 to chapter 19, it's in there. This is prophecy, 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 prophecy. So the guys who take this position say, yeah, it's prophecy, but all of the prophecies were fulfilled in the first century. They say there is nothing else in the book left to be fulfilled. All the predictions, all the prophecies, all the stuff about the future, it's now in the past. It was in the future when John wrote it, but from our perspective, 2,000 years later, it's all ancient history, so to speak. It's all gone by. And you look at this and you say, the big question when you hear this view is you say, they think Jesus has already come back because the book talks about Jesus coming back. Yes, the people who hold to this position say Jesus has already come back. They say when the Jews were destroyed and the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans, that was the visitation of Jesus coming in judgment against his people. You can say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Fine, but that's what this position says. All the predictions, all the prophecies have already been fulfilled. Jesus has already returned, and it's all sort of ancient history. There's nothing in this book this position says, that has anything to do with the end times. It was all talking about this build-up to what happened in 70 AD. That's one way to interpret the book. And there's a lot of people who interpret it that way. Not a lot of people in, let's just, for a lack of a better word, say Bible-believing churches believe this, but a lot of people in mainline Protestant churches, or for lack of a better word, liberal Protestant churches, would hold to this view. And they'd say, look, it's all about John, and he's writing to these churches, and it's just an inside baseball game between these guys. Everything that he predicted and prophesied when he wrote it was in the future, but it's already happened, and it's ancient history now. So let's move on from it. That's one way. Here's another way. It's called the historicist approach, historicist interpretation. This view says Revelation is actually a panoramic preview of all of history from Jesus ascending to heaven, okay, from John's day, 90 or so AD, all the way up until he comes back. They say this book is like a roadmap from Jesus all the way till Jesus coming back. And this view was very popular during the Protestant Reformation. So this is Luther and Calvin had held to this view. Smart guys, right? We're not talking about stupid people who believe this. Very intelligent people hold to this view. 
And they look in history, and they look at the book of Revelation, and they try to match stuff up. And what usually happened, get your wheels turning, Luther, Calvin, Protestant Reformation, what they usually ended up doing is saying all this Antichrist, uh, Antichrist stuff is about the Pope. That's who he's talking about. And they would point to different things in history that had happened. This bowl or this incident is this and this is this. And they try to map it all out in this broad span of history. The biggest problem with this view is no two people agree on how to match up the book of Revelation to history. How do you do it? Is it this pope? Is it this political leader? Is it this earthquake? Is it that earthquake? Is it this eclipse? Is it, how do you know? Nobody agrees on how you match up the, the descriptions in Revelation to actual history. Um, but there's a lot of people in history who have held to this view. Um, here's the thing to keep in mind before I move to the next one. Okay, this historic, historicist position says, all the things we read about, you can connect to real things in history. So one-to-one, you can map it out somehow. Okay, here's the third one. It's called the idealist position. This position says the book of Revelation is a symbolic description of the ongoing fight between good and evil. This position does not try to say this verse in Revelation refers to this historical event. There's none of that. They just sort of say, look, there's this struggle between good and evil, and the book of Revelation describes that in general terms. And they don't try to connect it to history in any way, shape, or form. So there's another approach. Here's one that is way more common that you have probably had interaction with or that some of you may agree with. It's called the extreme futurist position. This position says the stuff you read about in Revelation describes mostly, if not exclusively, things that are still in the future as of today. So people look at this book, and they're not looking for anything that's already happened. They're not looking for any timeless principles of the fight between good and evil. They're saying all this stuff is coming down the road. Okay, These are the guys who write books and sell them at the Christian bookstore. Every time a new dictator in the Middle East takes power or falls, they write a new book. And they say, this is probably the Antichrist. Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. Uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, he's the Antichrist. Oh, wait, well, he's not in charge anymore. So the next guy's the Antichrist. And it just goes on and on. And they're constantly looking to the future. They're constantly trying to figure stuff out. They think it's got a one-to-one correspondence, but it's all in the future. So the historicists say, no, we're one-to-one. We're matching up with events all throughout history of the church. The idealist or the uh, futurist position says, no, it's all in the future. Okay? So this is, honestly, this is the most popular view in the Bible Belt. This is the typical standard evangelical Baptist church view that, that reads the book of Revelation in this way. And uh, if the word makes sense to you, this would be like the dispensational view. If that word doesn't make sense to you, you don't need to know anything about it. Just forget it. But if you know what that word is, then this goes with that view. So there you go. Last view, or fifth, not the last, but I'm just going to give you five. The eclectic view. This view says, you know what? There's some value in all of those approaches. This view says, I don't think any one of you guys got it exactly figured out. And I'm going to be just putting all my cards on the table. I land on number five. Very cautiously land on number five. And so I look at these views and I say, the preterist view. The preterist view has a leg up on all these other ones. Something really, really important is they actually realize this is a letter written by a real guy to real people. And the real people who read it, it had to mean something to them. It can't just be all about the very, very end times. It had, John wanted it to mean something to the guys who read it. So that's an important part of the preterist view. The historicist view and the futurist view are both right, I think, in that saying the stuff described in here probably can be connected to some events in history. I mean, it's not just like fanciful ideas floating around in the clouds that we're talking about. John is writing about, in apocalyptic language, real things like 
John really thinks one of these days Jesus is going to come back. That's a real event. Connect it one to one. He's not just giving you these timeless sort of ideas about good versus evil. Um, And then the idealist view is also good in the sense that the idealist view says, regardless of where you live in history, 70 A.D., 1000 A.D., 2016 A.D., 3000 A.D., if Jesus hasn't come back yet, there's some principles we can take away from the book. And this last view, I really think, is the best view to hold in approaching the book of Revelation. So with that being said, let me, let me share some words with you of something that is debated. And uh, this is the last thing of the night you get to disagree with me on. Okay, last thing. Buck stops here. After I give you these words, then we have to all get on the same page. But you've got a few more minutes to think I'm crazy. How do you understand the millennium? Because the book of Revelation is the clearest book in the Bible in describing something called a thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium. And so how do you understand the millennium? Here's your choices. You can say, I'm going to hold to the amillennial position, amillennialism. That's where I'm going to land. Or you can say, I'm going to hold to the postmillennial position. Or you can say, I'm going to hold to the dispensational version of premillennialism. Or you can say, I'm going to hold to historical premillennialism. Those are your choices. And I'll explain with some, some lovely pictures what all these mean. And then I'll tell you what I think. All of these terms are describing the millennium in relation to Jesus' return. Okay, you got to keep that in your brain. We're talking about the return of Christ in this reign of Jesus. How do, how do those things fit together? So the first view is the amillennial position. And my graphic goes in reverse order. It was the best one I could find on the internet, though. So down at the bottom, amillennial. The cross is the cross. Jesus dies on the cross, right? Buried. Three days later, rise, goes to heaven. And then the amillennial position says there's some time. And then there's this symbolic millennium. It's not a real thousand years. Some people, all these other positions, tend to say it's a real thousand years that Jesus will reign on the earth. And the amillennial says, no, it's not a real thousand years. And it's not Jesus on the actual earth. It's, it's just this period, they would say, right now. And when it's over... You see there on the end, there's a line. That's the second coming and the last judgment, and Jesus comes back. And so the amillennial position, broadly speaking, would say Jesus is reigning right now in heaven. That's his reign. Okay. When Revelation 20 talks about Jesus reigning and Satan being bound, the amillennial position would say that's happening right now. You're living in it. And it's not like a set time period. It's just a thousand years. It's a long period of time, okay? Really long time when this is going to happen. And you say, Satan is bound. How do, you, how do you figure? And they say, well, look. Look how the gospel has spread over the last 2,000 years. It starts in Jerusalem. It goes to North Africa and Europe and North America and South America, Asia. I mean, it's gone all over the world. And the gospel is spreading. And it's going to continue to spread. There's still going to be lost people. We're, just, we're going to go on in this period and then Jesus is just going to come back one day, and that's it. We all go to heaven. It's over. New, new heavens, new earth. That's the amillennial position. Um, the next one up, postmillennialism, says, okay, there's a cross. Jesus dies, buried, sins to heaven. Then there's this church age, this long period here of nothing. And then there's this gray box. The millennium will come. And then at the end of that, Jesus is going to come back. So first, the millennium will occur, thousand years. Then Jesus comes back at the end. And here's the idea in this view, really, for a lot of guys who have held it in history. They say, we're going to go along here, chugging along in the church age, black line, black line. Then there's going to be kind of a, a leap forward, and the gospel's really going to go crazy, and the world is going to get better and better and better and better. And it sort of fit, this is ironic, but it sort of fit in the early 20th century with Darwinism and social progress and we're advancing and things are getting better all the time. And people started saying, look, it's, everything's getting better and better and maybe the millennium has started and it's just going to keep getting better and then when it's perfect, Jesus comes back. 
And that view kind of got blown out of the water in the early to mid 20th century. Why? Two world wars. And everybody said, oh, okay, so it's not that much better. Maybe that's not the best approach. But there's a lot of people who hold to that view. Um, Charles Wesley, post-millennial position. Jonathan Edwards. Look, you don't even have to be a Christian to say Jonathan Edwards might be the smartest American who has ever lived. And he believed in that theory. So before you laugh at it too much, just realize a guy way smarter than you thought it was true. So have a little bit of humble pie. Next one up, dispensational premillennialism. This is what you get 90% of the time in the Bible Belt. Okay, And this view says that the return of Jesus will take place in two stages. It's not just one coming back, but it's actually two comings back. And they say the first coming back is going to be what we call the rapture. He's going to come back secretly, and he's going to take his people, and he's going to snatch them out of here. And then there's going to be this period of tribulation. So you see cross, church age, rapture. First line is the rapture. Then there's a period of tribulation. Most of these guys would say it's a a real, literal seven-year period. Some of them would say figurative, but most of them say literal. Tribulation period. The next line is the second coming of Jesus publicly, visibly, in power and in glory and all the rest. And then when he comes back second time and everybody knows about it, then comes this millennium, this golden age where Jesus reigns on the earth, and then the real end and the last judgment at the end of that. That's what you get most of the time. And this is the view, for, for just to be real honest, is definitely the most popular view and most common view in Texas. And it's popular in Texas because of a guy named Paige Patterson, who you maybe have never heard of. He's the president of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, but he would hold to this position. It's very popular in Texas because of DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, teaches this view. And there's DTS grads all over the state, all over the United States. It's, it's the big dispensational school, but definitely in Texas there's a lot of them. And to be real honest with you, this is, view is popular because of the Left Behind books. Um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins that uh, wrote this you know, series of books, and this is what they taught, how it was going to go down. And they did tours all over, speaking tours and promoting books and all this stuff and conferences, and this is what they believe. So there's another view of the millennial. Millennium. Here's the last one, is historical premillennialism. Just if you were here when we looked at First and Second Thessalonians, um, you, you know that this has to be the right view, unless you want to rip First and Second Thessalonians out of the Bible. You can't end up on the th- next one down. But this one says Jesus dies, goes to heaven. There's this church age. Then there's going to be a period of tribulation. We're going to be here for it. And then at the end of that, Jesus is going to come back once. He's not going to come back secretly for a few folks. And then for the rest later, he's coming back one time. He's going to have his people. Then there's this millennium. Jesus is going to reign on the earth. And then there's the last judgment. Um, If I had to pick one, if I had to bet money, okay, give me a hundred bucks. They do this on the news all the time with presidential candidates. You get a hundred bucks and you got to bet on who's going to end up winning. So you give me a hundred bucks and I got to put it on these four views. I'm going to put 90 bucks on historical premillennialism. And I'm going to put 10 bucks on amillennialism as a hedge. And then I'm going to forget the other two. That's my bet. Your bet can be totally different. And we can still be friends. And we can still go to the same church. And we can still meet together and sing hymns on Wednesday night. And it's going to be great. And I'm not going to call you a crazy liberal who doesn't believe the Bible. And you don't have to call me a crazy person who's never read the Bible. We can disagree. I'm just being honest with you. I would lean strongly towards that last position. And uh, maybe a little hedge on the amillennial position. On those, on those middle two, post-millennial and especially the dispensational premillennialism. These guys, in all honesty, they come to the book of Revelation with a framework of what's going to happen at the end. And they go through the book of Revelation and they try to make it fit. And they look for stuff to make it fit. And if you actually sit down with one of these guys and you say, okay, according to your schema, 
how do you fit this in and this and this? And they show you the verses. I think you would look at them and say, have you lost your mind? I mean, your system, it all kind of fits together. It just doesn't fit the text. Yes, it makes sense as a whole, but it doesn't make sense when you compare to Scripture and what the Bible's describing here. So when you think about these positions, you've got to be very careful coming to the, the book of Revelation. And look, this is good Bible interpretation for every book of the Bible. Come to the Bible and listen to what it says. Understand what kind of literature it is. Understand who wrote it, if you can, and who they wrote it to and why they wrote it. Try to make sense of some of that stuff. And then just listen to it. And listen to it and walk away and come up with your theology. Don't come to the Bible with all your preconceived ideas about, well, mama and grandmama and preacher growing up said it was this way, so it's got to be this way. And then try to cram it on the text of the Bible. Because you end up with some really, really crazy stuff. So be extra careful of that in the book of Revelation. Come to it and say, what does it say? And can I be real honest with you? There's some things that you're going to read in the book of Revelation. If you come honestly without a system, you're going to say, I don't know what that means. That's okay. You don't have to have a system to figure it all out and to pigeonhole it somehow. It's okay to come to it and say, I don't know exactly what that means. Sounds like it may be talking about this, but man, that's kind of weird stuff. I don't really know what that means. That's perfectly okay. So at that moment in the evening right now, we have now passed from debatable things. Now we're going to talk about not debatable things, okay? This is where we get into you got to toe the line. And for all the crazy stuff in the book of Revelation that gets all the attention, there's some really powerful, clear gospel truths in the book that you need to understand and not miss. And it would be a real shame if you spent, we spent the evening or you spent your life arguing about the details of Revelation 14 and Revelation 16 and you missed the clear stuff. Because the clear stuff is really clear. And I'm going to give you just 10. I boiled it down to 10. I had to leave some stuff out, but here's 10. That's a good number. Number one, all three members of the Trinity are present and active in the book of Revelation. They're all there. When your Jehovah Witness friends come and knock on the door and they want to try to tell you that Jesus is not God that he's not divine, that he's, the Trinity is a fiction, the book of Revelation is a good place to go. One thing you see in the book of Revelation in these letters is that at times you read these letters to the churches and you say, Jesus is talking to them. It's clear, Jesus is the one talking. And then they sort of come around on the backside and you say, wait a minute, he just said the Holy Spirit said that. Who, who was that? Was that Jesus or the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is what? Yeah. It's the Godhead talking. Look in your Bible at Revelation 1. And you might just make a note on your outline. This is a handy verse to, to keep in mind. Revelation 1.17. There's all sorts of verses in the, in the uh, book of Revelation that talk about the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end, Right? You can find all these verses, and you can take your Jehovah Witness buddy, and you can say, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, who's that talking about? And they'll say, oh, it's talking about God. You say, not Jesus, right? No, it's talking about God. Jesus is a creature, they'll say. And then you go to Revelation 1, verse 17, and it says, When I, fell, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And you say... Uh, excuse me, you just said that Jesus was not God, but you just said that the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega is God, and this verse says that God died and then came back to life. When did that happen if, it, if it's not talking about Jesus? It's, it's talking about Jesus. And in other places, it is talking about God more generically, the Godhead, the one true living God. But here it's clearly talking about Jesus. So you see this all the way throughout the book. Um, all of the members of the Trinity are there. Number two, God has always been, He is now, and He will always be holy, holy, holy. 
Sometimes we read the book of Isaiah when Isaiah sees God in the temple and the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And we read that and we say, Isaiah had a panic attack when he saw God because what does Isaiah say? I'm a sinful man. Woe is me. I'm an unclean man. I have unclean lips. And you, you walk away from Isaiah 6 and you say, when he's confronted with God's holiness, he trembles because he's not holy. He's a sinner. But look at Revelation 4. This is in heaven. And it talks about in verse 8, there's four living creatures with six wings and they're full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they're giving glory and honor and thanks to the one who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders fall down before him. That's exactly what Isaiah did, right? Falls down in the presence of God. And you say, look, this issue of holiness is not just an issue of moral purity compared to our sin. It is that. But it's more than that. Because these are creatures in heaven who are not sinful. They are sinless. But they're creatures And they come before God and they get on their face as fast as they can because they say, you are holy, 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 and we are not. They're not saying, I'm a sinner. They're just saying, I'm a creature and you're the creator. You're the only one who made all of us and they get on their face in front of him. So it's important to remember that. That's the the most essential attribute of God in all the Bible that you need to understand is the holiness of God. Number three. God's people will experience suffering, and we are called to endure to the end. So this is in in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in these letters. This is something that you have to reckon with. Okay, I'm not saying this is a deal breaker. I'm just saying you're going to have to give me a good answer. If you want to say that we're going to be raptured out of here before the tribulation comes... You're going to have to answer for some of the things that John says to these churches. And John says things like Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. And he doesn't say don't fear it because you're going to get snatched out of here just in the nick of time. You're not going to have to go through it. He says the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation. And at that point you say, oh, it's only 10 days. I can handle 10 days. And then he says what? Be faithful unto death. Deliverance is not going to come for you guys. He just tells them straight out. You're about to suffer. And you're going to go to prison for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, you're going to die. That's how it's going to end. And what does he say to him? He doesn't say, just hold on because God's going to snatch you out of here at the last minute. That's not how God ever works with his people, is it? Throughout the Bible, they suffer. And he tells them right here, you're going to suffer. You're going to be in prison for 10 days. You're going to die. That's going to be the end. But then you'll be with God. You'll be with Jesus. If they chop your head off, he'll put it back on. Don't worry. Be faithful to the point of death. He says it in, uh, in chapter 2 to the church in Thyatira. Um, chapter 2, verse, what verse am I looking for? Mm, no, 13, verse 13, church in Pergamum. He says, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So for Smyrna, they're about to die for their faith. In Pergamum, they already died for their faith, some of them. And he just says, that's, I mean, be faithful to death, just like Antipas was. And he says it to the church in Philadelphia. This is chapter 3. Verse 10, you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And you read that and you say, well, it almost sounds like he's going to snatch them out of it. I'm going to keep them from it. But then he says, you've got to hold fast and you have to conquer. You have to hear my word. You've got to endure. So you look at these letters to these churches and they didn't get to skip out on the suffering. And Paul, in his letters, certainly didn't think we were going to skip out on suffering because he warned us about it. And Jesus, before he died, warned his followers about suffering. So if you're going to take the view of we get raptured out of here before the real suffering comes, you've got to say, well, why all of a sudden that? 
And some people think there's good answers, but you're going to have to come up with an answer for that. I think what Revelation is teaching us is that we are going to suffer, and you need to endure all the way to the end. Number four, the death of Jesus on the cross is the central, pivotal event in all of human history. And I love what we read in Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 9, again, is a vision of heaven. And it says that they sang a new song. So you understand in heaven, there will probably be some old songs, but there's also going to be some new songs. There's going to be a time in heaven where you sing a song that has never been sung before. So someone's going to sing it for the first time, and you're going to have that experience multiple times. They sing a new song, but they sing about the exact same thing they've been singing about forever. Look what they sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So they're singing, they're singing about the cross. That's the central event in all of history. Number five, there will be a final reckoning of all wrong and a final judgment of all sin. It's one of my favorite verses in Revelation 6. Look what it says. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So this seal is opened, however you want to interpret that. And what John sees is souls, people, who have died because they bore witness to the truth about Jesus. They were killed because they wouldn't shut up about their faith. Verse 10 means they're not on earth. They're with Jesus. They're completely glorified. They're no longer sinful people. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Translation, they're praying. These souls are praying. And their prayer is, God, when are you going to go kill the people that killed us? That's what they say. And when we read that, we say, well, that's no way to pray. You shouldn't pray that. You almost expect God to say, you shouldn't pray things like that. And look what he says. Verse 11, they were each given a white robe and said to rest a little longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Just a little bit longer. He doesn't tell them to not hope for a reckoning and a final judgment. He just says, it's going to be a little bit longer, so you just wait. And when I'm ready, it's going to happen. It will happen. There will be a reckoning of all wrong, a setting right of wrongs, and there will be a final judgment of sin. Number six, Jesus is going to return to the earth, and his second coming will be in power and glory. Okay? So whether you think there's going to be a secret rapture or not, we can all agree on this. He is going to come back, and when he comes back, it's going to be a powerful and a glorified thing. And you can read about that in Revelation 19. We're going to look at it Sunday, so we're not going to read it. I don't want to steal my own thunder, but we're going to look at it Sunday morning. Actually, it's going to be next Sunday because I'm going to be out of town this Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to look at it. So you're going to have to really wait. He is coming back, and it's going to be in power and glory. Number seven, the return of Christ will lead to resurrection and eternal salvation for believers. So here's, here's one time I'm going to make you be honest. You have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever had the thought that floating around on a cloud at choir practice forever is eventually going to get boring? If you've not had that thought, you haven't thought about heaven very much because come on, that's going to get boring. If you're just sitting on a cloud all day long and you're just singing forever and ever and ever and ever and that's all you ever do and you don't ever get to have a bathroom break or a nothing. I mean, you just, it's forever singing, singing, singing. Honestly, you think about that, you're like, that doesn't sound like heaven. That's nobody's idea of heaven. Just forever singing in choir practice and formation. That's no good. But good news, that's, we're not going to do that. There's going to be some singing. I just told you we're going to sing some new songs. 
And you're going to get down on your face in front of Jesus. You're not just going to chum up to him like, hey, buddy, high five. I mean, you're going to be laid out and you're going to be singing. And it even says the singing is going to be loud. So you might want to bring some earplugs or something because it's going to be really loud. But in the end, you're going to have a body. You're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. When Jesus comes back from the dead, is he a ghost? Floating around on a cloud, wearing a robe and plucking a harp? No, he's a guy. Touch me. I'm real right here. Give me some fish. Let's have dinner, man. I'm hungry. He's a real guy. And you think about, man, in that endless choir practice, and I'm just this spirit up there, this phantom, I'm going to miss a big old juicy T-bone. Well, you're going to get to have one. You're going to have a body, and you're going to get hungry, and you're going to need to eat, and it's going to be great. You're going to have a perfect body. You're not going to have allergies. You have allergies in West Texas and the dust and all that stuff. You're not going to have allergies. You're not going to have headaches, migraines. I saw people posting on Facebook today about migraines. You're not going to have migraines. You're going to be perfect, but you are going to have a body. And Revelation 20 is very clear that you're going to have a physical body. In the beginning, God made people to have a physical body and an immaterial body invisible soul and those two things were together and in the end he's not going to give up one of those things to sin or to satan he's going to fix it and redeem it and restore it exactly the way he wanted it to be and you're going to have a soul you're going to have a body and they're going to be joined together and it's going to be great number eight when jesus returns he is going to defeat satan once for all by casting him into hell that's in revelation 20 and this one's important enough we should read it. Because the, the average, I'm not talking about the average lost person. I'm talking about the average person in church thinks Satan's in charge of hell. He's down there like poking people and torturing them and stretching them out and whipping them and burning them with stuff. I mean, that's what people think about. Satan's down there running the show. But it's not going to be that way. It isn't that way. Revelation 20, verse 7, when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look, I realize there's stuff in there we can debate. The not debatable part is that Satan is not the taskmaster in hell. He gets thrown into hell as punishment, just like everybody else who is there. So keep that clear in your mind. Jesus will defeat Satan, cast him into hell. Number nine, this piggybacks on the last one. Hell is a very real place, and it's the destination of those who don't trust in Jesus for salvation. You can read about that in Revelation 20, verse 11 and following. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to move on. Number 10, last one. There will be a new, restored, cleansed creation where we will live with God. And I know there's crazy stuff in the book of Revelation, but Revelation 21 and 22 might be my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And they're really not that complicated. There's some debatable stuff in there, but I think most of it's pretty clear. You're not going to live for all eternity as some spirit floating around. God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And you're going to have a new body. And you're going to live on the new earth. And you're going to do heavenly things and earthly things. And so sometimes you think about your life right now and you say, man, I love to watch a sunset. Great, you're going to get to do that forever. You're going to be better than it ever is here in the new creation. You say, man, I love working in my garden. It's so much fun. Great, you're going to have one. And it's going to be a lot easier than it is now, especially than it is in Odessa, Texas. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. And you're going to do stuff. And you're going to have dominion over the creation like God wanted you to, to have in the beginning. So that's how it's all going to end. And we're going to end with reading part of Revelation 21. And I'll pray and then uh, we'll try to get through the rest of what we need to do. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, presented as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So let's pray. Father, we come to this book and we ask for wisdom and we pray that you would help us to be humble and to admit the things that we don't know, we don't understand, we can't make sense of. Um, But Father, help us to hold on to the things that are clear and the things that are obvious and the things that are true. Forgive us when we worry more about the, the details and the debated issues and the interpretive questions than just the obvious truths that we see in this book. And there's so many beautiful gospel, biblical truths about who you are and what you've done for us and what our eternity with you is gonna be like. And so help us to hold on to those things. Help us to have great hope that in the end, you are going to make it all right. And despite all the chaos we see around us, you're going to set it right in the end, and we trust you to do that. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.